Here's my question to start off today with. What did the cross prove to the Jews in Jerusalem? What did it prove to them? After Jesus had been crucified, had been lain in a tomb, what did it prove to those in Jerusalem? Well, according to Jewish law, which says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' execution as a criminal proved him out to be a heretic under the curse of God for those in Jerusalem. And that the Pharisees were right all along. What this man was saying was untrue, and he was just another messianic pretender. And in the book of Acts you kind of hear this tone in the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that. But 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 the death of Jesus of Nazareth proved that he was not who he said he was in the eyes of the Jews. So here's the historical question. There's a big book by, by a scholar, N.T. Wright, Resurrection of the Son of God. He asks the following historical question. He says, after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was crucified, why would anyone call him the Messiah? Well, we could see while he was on earth performing miracles, but after he was crucified, why would anyone call him the Messiah? Furthermore, why would the disciples who had just abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman army came to arrest him, why would they they stand up in the middle of Jerusalem in the face of certain persecution and begin so boldly preaching that Jesus is the Messiah? Why would they do that after his crucifixion? What caused, furthermore, such a frenzy in the ancient world and such a transformation of not only Jerusalem, but the entire Near East and beyond to Rome, Spain, Corinth, What happened? What caused such a transformation? Well, it was not the preaching or the claim that another messianic pretender had been crucified. It was the claim that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and left an empty tomb behind him. And that has made all the difference in history. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts 2. 22 through 32. In this passage, the Holy Spirit has just dropped on the people in Jerusalem, just like Christ had promised his disciples. And the Holy Spirit is allowing his word to be spoken in different languages so that everyone on earth in Jerusalem can hear the preaching of the gospel in their own language. And Peter gets up in front of the crowd and explains to them this bizarre and peculiar event. Starting in verse 22. 
Peter stands up. The same Peter who denied Christ three times just a few weeks ago. He stands up and boldly, with assurance, because he saw the resurrected Christ, and says the following, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not based on mystical religious ideas or some vague notions about how the world works. Christianity is based on an event in history. There was a man... Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified by Romans in 33 AD. And three days later, later, his tomb was empty, and he was seen alive by his followers. There is the event in history that has changed the world and will transform the world to come. What I want to do today, just for a few minutes, is center your faith around Christ's resurrection. Sharpen your faith around Christ's resurrection. Because I believe that Christ's resurrection is the anchor of our faith. If you have doubts, if you have questions about the Bible, about doctrines, the resurrection is the anchor of your faith. It's also the pattern of your life. If you are caught in sin, pornography, overeating, depression, Christ's resurrection is powerful enough to raise your depression and your addiction from the dead. 
and allow you to walk in the newness of life. Christ's resurrection is also the source of your hope. Because many fear death in this congregation right now. But if Christ rose from the dead, and if you are in Christ, he promises to rise you with him when the time is right. So let's talk about these three things for a few minutes. First of all, Christ's resurrection is the anchor of our faith. In the passage I just read, I want to point out three features. Number one, Peter says that Jesus was attested, that is, he was put forward by God in verse 22. That is, put forward by God the Father as the one through whom he would act to bring the kingdom and reconciliation to mankind. So those miracles that Jesus Christ performed, they were done out of care and compassion, but the ultimate reason they were done was to demonstrate that God has been acting according to and through the will of the Father. In Luke 11.20, Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. So Jesus is the kingdom bringer. And the point of his miracles is to show the healing the joy, the gladness that will be characteristic of the future kingdom of God and which you can now enter through faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, you know, in ancient rabbinic texts, Jewish texts from the first and second century, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was referred to as a sorcerer. Isn't that interesting? referred to as a sorcerer which the Jews should not listen to. He was practicing dark magic. Of course, we know he was working through the power of God. But I find it interesting, even in non-Christian texts, his power was not questioned. Second feature is Jesus' cru crucifixion took place according to, as Peter said, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The resurrection was not an accident. It was the plan of the fullness of time. I asked the men yesterday, we talked about some passages. Why did Jesus say to the road to Emmaus, O oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, that Christ must suffer and enter into his glory. And we talked about some passages that Jesus may have had in mind, like Isaiah 53, where a servant of the Lord stands in for the people of God and takes their sin upon himself. Psalm 23 or Psalm 22, when there is a man who is beaten and crucified. You see, you see atonement and the need for atonement sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. And so the, plan, the, the cross was the plan of God from the very beginning. 
in order to reconcile. The, the only way to reconcile us to God is that your sins are paid for through a death. Let me, I, I wasn't going to do this, but let me just briefly, you don't have to turn there to Romans 3.21. And Paul talks about the saving righteousness of God in, in the gospel. And he puts it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation to, by his blood to be received by faith. Now, why did God do that? Why couldn't God just forgive your sin? Why couldn't he just say, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. Carl, I forgive you of your sins. And just be done with it. Why did he need a cross to reconcile us to God? Here's the answer. Second part of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God passing over former sins might make people suspect that God doesn't actually deal with sin. Why does he let the sun shine? Why does he not utterly destroy us on the spot for our sin? He has been passing over former sins. But then, 2,000 years ago, at the cross, he paid for all the sins. And the whole purpose of this was to show the righteousness of God. It would be a horrible judge to just sweep sin under the rug. It would be a horrible judge to do that. A good judge requires the full weight of the law to be brought down on the sinner. And so God did require the full weight of the law to be brought down. But because he is loving, God himself took off his robes and took the penalty on our behalf. So it is basically the gospel is the resolution of God's holiness and his love in one act in the cross. It's holy love. You know, we sing, it was my sin that held him there. And I love that song, don't get me wrong, but your sin had no power over Jesus Christ. It was his own love that held him on the cross and his own holiness that held him on the cross. He could have destroyed you for your sin. It was his love that held him there. So, the cross took place according to the, pl the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Third feature is that God raised Jesus up from the dead. And here the last word 
in verse 32. God raised him up, and of that we are all witnesses. A witness is somebody who has seen an event and can report what happens. Right? That's what a witness is. And the disciples, right here, Peter, is claiming to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what you have in the New Testament is not just theological ideas, although that is important and true. And it tells you about reality. But I want you to understand that what you have in the New Testament is the testimony of those who knew and saw the risen Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John. John was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right, He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He saw the transfiguration. Listen to how John opens up his letter. He, he's, not, he's not just saying, let me tell you about the mystical realities. He is speaking as a witness. Listen to these words. That which was from the beginning. That which we have heard. Now you hear things with your ears. That which we have heard. That which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it. And testify to it. And proclaim to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He is writing as somebody who has seen and heard something that has changed his life and changed the world. The resurrected Christ. The Apostle Paul, it's the same way with him. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul hands down the gospel. Starting in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Or 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today. Though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is, is telling you who Jesus appeared to. Some of the people Jesus appeared to. And it's very interesting, as I've pointed to you, out to you before, that he says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive today. 
meaning they're there. At the time Paul was writing this, he was saying they're there and they could even be questioned about what they saw. Most of them are still alive and they have seen the risen Christ too. So, the New Testament writers don't think of them as gurus or sages. Think of them as disciples, first and foremost, and then people who saw the risen Lord and were given power by that Lord to spread the news to the world. Now, if you are a doubter in this congregation today, or if you have questions or uncertainties about the gospel, about the Bible, about the facts that we teach in this church, I want you to know that I have a heart for you. I have a heart for you. I, I don't condemn you for having honest questions. But I would pose this to you for your consideration. God has not given us every answer to every question in the world. The Bible tells us the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that he has revealed are revealed to us so that we might believe and obey them. So you're not reduced to comparing religions, religious truth claims, or trying to come to 100% certainty on every detail. Now, I want you to become strong in the faith. I do want that from you. But I want you to start at the beginning. So listen to me. If Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and left an empty tomb behind him, then Christianity follows. And the rest is filling in the details. So if you're a doubter or you have uncertainties, start with Christ's resurrection. There is no straddling fences, however, with the resurrection. Either he rose or he didn't rise. If he did not rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. And I am just spouting foolishness today. But if he rose from the dead, he demands your life and your obedience and your faith and your hope. And he will have it. There's no gray area. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And you must come to full bear with that reality. So I present to you Jesus Christ as your Lord based on the fact that he rose from the dead. And if someone rises from the dead, or rises himself from the dead, right John? Someone rises himself from the dead, you should probably listen to him. So, the resurrection is the anchor of your hope. Second, it's the pattern for your life. Please understand that Christianity, what we're saying is not just believe the, the right thing and you'll go to heaven one day. We are saying that there is a fundamental change that happens to your Christian upon belief. You have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. From a state in which your heart is blind to spiritual truth and reality, 
to a place where your eyes are now opened, you have been given ears to hear, and you can be brought into greater conformity with the order of God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 is your spiritual biography. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. That's you before Christ. But there's a great but in verse 3 or 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. What is happening there is that Christ's resurrection has taken you from that state of death and has grabbed onto you and raised you out of the grave. And you are positionally secure in heavenly places through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you have already undergone a real metaphysical change where you are with the Father positionally through Jesus Christ. That is why, so what I'm saying is that to be a Christian is to have Christ's life attached to yours. His life is attached to yours. That's why, that's why this church is named Church of the Vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If there's a branch in me, it's going to bear fruit, Jesus says. So if, if there's a twig, a branch on the ground, just laying on the ground, it's not going to produce any fruit. Its only chance to, be, to produce fruit is to be grafted into a living tree. You know, they actually do that. They take branches and they can graft them into other trees. It's very interesting. And so if that branch is grafted into another tree, what will happen is that tree, the root of that tree, the vitality of that tree will begin to send its life through the branch and eventually it will produce fruit through that branch and it will it will live in a way that it could not live without being attached to the vine that's the essence of the christian life it is the life of god in the soul of man so you are not helpless so this is not to the doubter but this is to the the person in this congregation right now or the persons who just continue to be defeated by sin. You are not helpless against sin. You have the life of Jesus Christ in you. But you say, well, the gospel's about grace, right? And if God just, 
if God responds to sin with grace, then why not just sin so that grace should abound? I'm glad you asked that question because we turn to Romans 6 and we hear the answer to that very question. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then, the Apostle Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if God just gives grace to sinners, let's just sin, if that's the logic of the gospel. But that's not the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel is that the life of Christ has been given to you, implanted in you, and you are in union with Christ. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So the Apostle Paul is saying, You are united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whereby you die to your own life and live to a new life through the power of Christ in you. So you are not helpless against sin. You are not utterly defeated. The life of Christ pulsates through you right now, waiting to be obeyed in the dark, when you're right near your computer and you're tempted, when you wake up, And you begin to giving in to depression and anxiety. When you forget problems or let loose with too much drinking, the vitality of Christ runs through the Christian and it can animate your entire being, not just your afterlife, but your life now. You've been raised to walk in the newness of Christ. So, Christ's resurrection is a power to live as well, implanted in you. You know the song says, uh, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So, my next and final point then is that the resurrection is not just the anchor of our faith. It's not just the pattern of the, of the Christian life, but it's also the source of our future hope. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, 15, 19 again, if you would. If in Christ, the Apostle Paul says, we have hope in this life only, we are of most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. You know, the passing of time is surreal to me. I mean, as I get older, I'm, I'm now one of those old guys that thinks it's amazing how old I am. So, uh, it's a... I mean, the people and places that I knew... And high school is kind of long ago now. It's very strange. 
You know, I was I came across something online a couple year, maybe a year ago, but it said that you know remember the show The Wonder Years? The Wonder Years was writ, was made in the nineteen the early nineteen nineties, and it was remembering the years nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy four. And you say, ah, oh, that's so far away. Then they said, if The Wonder Years was made today, it would be remembering the years two thousand one to two thousand five, which is just mind boggling to me. Because wasn't that yesterday? Yeah. I feel like I could continue a conversation with somebody from 2005. The passing of time is just amazing. It is surreal. And our bodies are, are wasting away. And that is a reminder that we are mortal and that we will die someday. You know, Nitty and I were driving down New Jersey turnpike I think one day and we saw I've never seen a graveyard this big in my life I think it may have been a military graveyard but it was massive and we just kept driving and driving past this thing it like was endless I didn't know that there were that many dead people around it was a it was huge and it just when you see a graveyard does it not make you think of your own mortality I mean if all those people died then I'm going to die. There's a there's a monastery in Spain. And you walk into the monastery and it has the skulls of the monks who resided in that Scots, that monastery in ages past. And written on the wall it says where you are we once were. Where we are you will be. That is such a reminder of the fleetingness of life and to therefore set your mind on eternal things, things that pertain to a resurrection. Some, it, is, it is a very real possibility that some of us here will be at other people's funeral here. You may be at my funeral someday. Especially the way Nydia drives lately. <laughs> it's a very real possibility. <laughs> but we are all, we're all facing death and our bodies tell us that. It's a very real possibility. Well, not a possibility. Within 70 years, except for some of, some of the little children, we're all gone. <laughs> right? Life is fleeting. But Christ's resurrection makes a difference. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ. In Christ shall all be made alive. Um... Christ is the first fruits means that he is the first of a great harvest. There's going to be a great harvest at the end of the age. And those who belong to Christ, their souls, their bodies, their souls will be given back their bodies at the resurrection. On the last day 
at the last trump, at the final call. Your bodies will be reconstituted in transformed physicality to be fit for a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. I want to skip ahead to verse 53. He says, For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortality must put on immortality. Do you know our ultimate hope is a physical hope? It's not to float up into some kind of ethereal existence, kind of smoky and hazy where we don't really know each other and we're lobotomized in some spiritual way. That's not the hope. The hope is a real physical hope, transformed physicality on a new heavens and a new earth. You ever seen Iron Man? You know, when he puts a suit on, the suit just kind of comes over him. I always think about that when I read this verse. That for this perishable must put on what is imperishable. This mortal body, this body right here, must put on immortality. And when this perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. If you are afraid of death, take heart. Take heart because God has given you a hope that is the anticipation of joy because of Christ's resurrection. Psalm 27, the psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So today, have no guilt in life or fear in death through Jesus Christ. In the 1700s, there was a Baptist minister named Andrew Gifford. And he did a funeral of a, a very old man. I want to read you the last word he spoke to in that funeral. And actually, Todd and Stefan, you could come up while I read this. Farewell. I imagine him standing over over the body of this old man who had trusted Jesus Christ his whole life, who had been to the church, maybe cleaned the church, who had been faithful, had lived, and died in faith. Andrew Gifford said, Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O King of Terrors. At the mouth of this dungeon, thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. 
And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ. At that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all, nothing, but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Amen. And amen. Brothers, would you lead us in one last song? I invite you to stand for one last song.